join me for a reading from the New Testament. Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. But to the one that has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. you pray with me? God, we thank you for your commitment to us right now. We thank you that um, whether we think we came here by chance, uh, whether we came here not really wanting to come here today, you've led us here. And we trust for you to do good and great work. I pray that you would bless every heart here. Open the eyes of our hearts, in Christ's name, amen. Lyndon, is this up too high? Is that why I'm, I'm all right? Okay. So, tonight we're going to wrap up this series that we've been going through called Jesus' Bible. And what we've been studying is uh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and looking at how these scriptures formed Jesus, the priority that they were in his life. And there are a couple different themes um, I want to lift out of that to summarize what we've been seeing. First, that Jesus saw his Bible and his scriptures as relevant to him. Now, consider this. Some of them were written 5,000 years ago. So maybe you hear people save the Bible. Maybe you feel this way. It was written so long ago. It's outdated. It's not very relevant. His Bible was written a long time ago. There were probably some people who thought it was outdated. He understood it to be relevant to his life, relevant to the day. Second thing is uh, we see that Jesus saw his Bible, the Old Testament, as consistent with what he was teaching. Now, um, another thing that we find happens today, and again, maybe this has been your thought, that is uh, Jesus 
teaching gets, uh, they get, it, it gets pitted against the Old Testament. So the idea is that uh, folks will say, well, you know, I like Jesus' teaching, but when it gets to the Old Testament, you know, I don't like that so much. And, I, you know, Jesus, what he taught, that's what's really important. But what you find is actually Jesus saying that he would not abolish even the smallest letter, the smallest stroke of the Hebrew scriptures, that he came to fulfill it. In fact, Jesus really didn't see himself as bringing a brand new revelation. Meaning he saw that he was building upon what God had already given. So he saw his Bible as consistent. Thirdly, he saw it as formative in developing who he was personally, his character, his goals in life, his vision in life. We get an early snapshot of this when he's a preteen and he goes missing. He wanders off, he gets fixated, and it's not toward Taco Bell, but he actually heads to the temple. And for three days, he's there with the religious leaders, chopping it up, talking about the Bible as a preteen. And then you fast forward in the life and you see as he's being tempted, as he's in the desert, what is it that he's drawing upon? His Bible, even his very last breaths as he's being crucified and dying, the Bible is coming out of him. It was formative to who he was, the Old Testament. And lastly, it was instrumental. What I mean by that, let me try to illustrate it. There's a couple in our church uh, who were gracious and kind uh, to say that Meg was instrumental in introducing them so that they would be married. And Meg, of course, claims this and she loves that, uh, you know, that matchmate. It was Meg's words that were instrumental for the relationship happening. Jesus understood that his Bible was instrumental in his relationship with God the Father. In fact, you couldn't have a relationship without that word. He regularly would say, it's the words that you've said and revealed to me, the basis of their oneness. And so this is Jesus' view of his Bible. And I would ask you, especially those of you that are professing Christians, is that your view of Jesus' Bible? Is that how you regard the Old Testament. Another thing we find with Jesus is he was willing to bear the hard parts of his Bible. And that means we, too, will find things in both the New Testament and the Old Testament that we go, this is hard for me. This is difficult for me, either intellectually or emotionally or living it. And you should know you're in good company. But it leads us to our topic tonight, which I'm calling uh, Jesus' view of enlightenment. How do the spiritual lights get turned on? How do you come to understand what it means to actually know God? Now, in our day, when you hear the word of enlightenment, a lot of people go to that period in history where um, uh, reason was put to the forefront and um, truth and facts were put on the forefront. 
and then later we would say science and medicine, and all of these things are a great blessing, right? I mean, these things I just mentioned give us such benefits. Wonderful when it comes to vaccines for viruses or uh, weather forecasts, reading storms that are going to blow in like yesterday, right? Technology, lots of things, especially a blessing when it comes to material things. But when it comes to personal things, not so helpful, not so much. You know the old adage to, to, um, to, to the person that sees everything as a nail, every tool is what? A hammer. What the Enlightenment gave us was one tool in the toolbox. But what we find here is not insignificant. Consider this, that when God wanted us to know about who he was, he didn't actually flash up a graphic of the way DNA works and all the brilliant things that he did to make the universe orderly and complex and beautiful. He sent a person. He sent his son so that we could know the truth of who he is. In fact, all truth is really personal. I mean, whether you're seeking to learn the truth of math or masonry or music, think about it. The desire to study is personal. It comes from your desire, and you're not going to learn unless you get help from another person, a guide. And then ultimately, you have to make a personal commitment and jump in the water to learn to swim. Get on the bike. In a sense, you could say all knowledge is personal. But when we come to the truth of knowing God, we really have to understand it if we're going to be enlightened. So enlightenment, when we talk about Jesus' view, deals with unavoidably matters of the heart. Matters of the heart, because persons are always dealing with the heart. We should be. And so when the disciples asked Jesus why he teaches in parables, and parables were short stories, illustrations that had morals, when they ask him that, he immediately goes to the heart of the matter as he talks about the religious leaders. And he doesn't say, listen, I speak in parables because the one that solves the mystery, the one that figures out the logic problems, and he's always terrible logic problems. The one that uh, figures out the code, the one that figures out the brain teaser gets to go to heaven. There's a part of religion and philosophy that works that way. Right? If you spend enough time, you'll get the answer. One of my uh, favorite stories from John Lennon and, uh, you know, of the Beatles, I shouldn't have to say that. But when they were um, with the Maharishi, and this was when they were hoping that Eastern philosophy and his teaching would enlighten them, and um, a helicopter showed up to the compound, and the Maharishi said that he could uh, take one person with him, and Lenin sort of pushed his way to the front, McCartney said. And uh, he said that was sort of like Lenin. And he got in there. And he took the ride and he came back and he said, why, why did you so much you know, want to get there? And he said, I thought he might slip me the answer. 
not even like slipping me the answer of life, the meaning of life. That's kind of how we think about it. But we find in Jesus' understanding of enlightenment something a little different. And that is um, there's a grief. There's a grief that he mentions with respect to lack of enlightenment. And there's a gift. So let's look at those two things together as we close out this study. So as Ryan said last night, um, we had our event with our artist and resident, uh, Rex Doherty. And Rex read a brand new play. Um, Meg had said afterward, I, I wish, Meg's my wife, by the way, um, um, said, man, I, you know, I, I wish so much the church community could begin to reflect more and more what we just experienced. What uh, Rex displayed before us so skillfully and vividly and tragically and compassionately and powerfully, what he displayed before us, put, put something that was so relevant to all of us here. And, and the overall theme of the reading was addiction. And it's this dual thing that is present in addiction. On the one hand, inability. On the other hand, culpability. Right? Inability, the idea that where an addiction actually begins to rule and run a person's life, but not without their cooperation and choices, and it's all very complex and very messy. Maybe another way to say this is the way in addiction cannot and will not coexist with each other. And that is greatly relevant to what is happening in this passage and to what Jesus is speaking about with respect to the way that the religious leaders and many in Israel are responding to him. Drawing insight from his Bible, from Isaiah, he says this. See if you can hear those two dynamics in this passage. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Man, that's, that's where we live with the people that we love. That's where we live even in our own struggles. And it's where we live with God, especially in the natural state of our hearts before his intervention. Uh, one great scholar of the Old Testament in Isaiah says, in those words I just read, there's a double emphasis. First of all, there's an uh, inability of the outer faculties, of hearing and seeing, but also the inner ones, understanding, discerning, perceiving, knowing. And then to round it out, Isaiah uses this sort of chiastic structure where he goes, he talks about the inability of the heart, the unwillfulness of the ears, the eyes, and then the eyes, the ears, the heart. What is he trying to say? This is, this is bad. This is comprehensive here. We're not talking about uh, something slipped by. This is about being locked down. 
This is about being blind. This is about being dead. What addicts will often call rock bottom. One of the songs that uh, Rex, uh, well, a play that he would also sing in character. And one of the, one of the uh, lyrics that someone raised uh, said that really hit them was, and I may not be getting it perfectly, uh, it's this, I hit rock bottom and then I broke through the stone. That place, that low place. And apart from, and, and what we're talking about there is what the Bible would call the bondage of the will, the slavery of sin. This is what sin does, the insanity of sin. And whether or not you believe in God or believe in the Christian faith or believe in the Bible, at some level, you've got to give an account, an account of that, right? You know it's just not biology. You know it's just not morality. How do we give an account for that insanity that any one of us is liable to when we have people in our lives where you're like, don't you see this? Do you hear yourself? Don't you see the place that you're in? And apart from the gift of God's enlightenment, it leads to destruction. Jesus, there are uh, hints of that judgment here. And for the one that finds themselves in the role of being a truth teller, it can be heart-wrenching because you're put in a position where you, you might be the means of the healing or the heartache. Again, listen to this uh, from a uh, scholar, and he's talking about Isaiah's task in ministry to Israel, but also Jesus's to the religious leaders, but I think it's relevant to everything that I've said so far. If hearers are resistant to the truth, the only recourse is to tell them the truth yet again, more clearly than before. But to do this is to expose them to the risk of rejecting the truth yet again, and therefore of increased hardness of heart. It could even be that the next rejection will prove to be the point at which the heart is hardened beyond recovery. The human eye cannot see this point in advance. It comes and goes unnoticed. But the all-sovereign God both knows it and appoints it as he provides, presides in perfect judgment. When you relate to that place, and this gets into the deep insight of the parables. You see, the parables, as Jesus says, give to some and take from others. To those that are humble and see their low place in their need, it gives healing, it gives life. To those that resist and deny, it alienates them further and further. The parable serves as a test, a test of the heart. And so Jesus says of those that had been rejecting him, that will be taken from them. In many ways, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty, but if you had, you know, 
there's throughout the, the film, and you know, the film is, I don't, I probably can't explain it shortly, uh, that Jim Carrey plays this guy who becomes God, but he's not, and then he meets God. You have to look at it yourself. But the point is, throughout, there is a homeless man holding signs, and they're misspelled, but in the, and signs that either get ignored or Jim Carrey just, you know, he, he's just scorns. But in the end, you find out that that homeless man is actually God, and he was holding signs the whole time. This is what Jesus looks like to those of the religious leaders and those in the culture. They look, and they're just like, you are this crazy guy that doesn't have a home holding up signs that don't make any sense. Ignore or scorn. The Old Testament example of this is actually seen uh, with Pharaoh. Interesting thing, this dynamic, because we find two things said of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. As As Pharaoh hardened and gave himself more and more to injustice and sin, God did a judicial letting go, or however God does it, pulled back the restraint and the language that he hardened his heart. But I think in our minds, what it raises is this question not only of fairness, but, you know, God, aren't you being harsh? Jesus, aren't you being harsh when you read this? And we have to be reminded of another prophet, Ezekiel, where God says this, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you find the same sentiment some chapters later in Mark. In chapter 23, you find Jesus standing on the hill overseeing Jerusalem and having had a chance to go to the Holy Land. I can picture it. He's standing, he's looking over it, and he begins to grieve, and he begins to lament and says, how I wanted to gather you like a hen would gather chicks, but you would not have it. There is a grief. There is a grief that happens when we talk about the topic of enlightenment. Jesus is not heartless about what's happening, nor is God. But it puts before each one of us here, right, The question of how do I respond to the light that is given to us? Woe to us if we ignore it. Woe to us if we scorn it. The Lord does not dispense his wisdom and kindness without cost. But as usual, the grace outweighs the sin. The gift outweighs the guilt and the grief. And we get a message here of gift. Jesus says to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, is that because the disciples are morally better or just smarter? You only have to read a little bit of the Gospels to know that's not true. I mean, half the time Jesus is like, what do I do here? 
their sin is on display. No, that's not why they were given it. And that word given to you, it's been given, it's an important word because when you're given something, it means it was a gift. And so enlightenment is a gift. One theologian has said, a mystery in biblical language is not a detective story. It is a truth God reveals because no one would ever discover it by himself. Moses said, uh, the word is near. You don't have to go up to heaven and get it. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. The Lord has made it near. The Christian faith is the only one that teaches uh, to get into God's company in his favor what you need to get into heaven, to get into forgiveness, to get into righteousness, to get into being adopted, to be blessed by God is nothing, and most people don't have it. Most people don't have nothing. What do I mean by that? Because most of the religions or secularism are basically saying, I will bring things to the table, I will bring things in my arms, and that will be the basis by which God says, here's the gift. That's not a gift. That's bartering. But it brings up the doctrine of election. Election. This idea that God is the one that chooses who and how he removes the scales from the eyes, breaks the bonds, raises the dead. And a lot of times, poor Apostle Paul gets tagged for being the bad guy on this. I don't like Apostle Paul, and I don't like him writing about election or predestination or any of that stuff. Well, where did Paul get it from? He got it from Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching. In fact, you can go to another place where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless I draw him like water from a well. And of course, Jesus was just getting it from his Bible. But it does raise that question for us. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And here I began to think about friends I have that are on the road to recovery from their addiction. And it occurred to me something about them. Those that have hit that place of rock bottom, they never seem demanding that God should have showed them mercy and rescued them. There's no demandingness, nor is there a demandingness about other people in the circle and what's going on with them. Somehow, hitting rock bottom has taught them both that lesson of inability and culpability that leads to human And if you and I hit rock bottom in our own little world of understanding our sin, taking the downward journey, which really uh, in the church calendar Lent is about, seeing more and more my need for Jesus, downward journey. Right now I've told you my downward journey is being executed by a nine-week-old puppet. And I am not joking. I'm glad you did not see me this morning. I love this dear guy to death. He's loving me to death. Putting me to death. Anyway. Um, and so, there's a beautiful humility that comes. And Jesus makes clear that this is a gift. And so does the rest of the New Testament. Now, I want you to listen to this and hear both the inability, the culpability, and the guilt. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out selfish desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That describes the enlightenment that God brings to us in that bind and that fix. When rich mercy and great love and the gift of God penetrate your heart and your eyes and your mind and your life, that's when you begin to see what Jesus says, the things that the prophets and the righteous men and women lost. All of a sudden you see Jesus' Bible and it itself dresses him in a way where you just go, wow. You come to see that way back in the book of Genesis, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent is Jesus himself crushing the enemy, the devil, by his own death, which means... You and I have overcome the world, those that believe in him. We see that the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob yielded a promised son who would then bring together a family of every tribe, tongue, and nations, a cross-cultural family, which means no matter what culture says, you belong. In Christ, you belong in the family of God. We begin to see that the blood that came from the lamb that was put on the doorpost by Israel as they ate the Passover and the angel of death blew through Egypt and rendered judgment. We see that that lamb is Jesus, the lamb of God, who sheds his blood as an atonement, which means you are no longer guilty. You are no longer guilty. You are holy and blameless and righteous in the sight of God. Through his Bible, we come to see that it was Jesus who was the cloud that gave Israel shade and the fire by night and the bread that fell from heaven when there was nothing to eat and the water that came from the rock when they were dying from thirst. He promises that he will be your shade and your refuge and your food when you're aching with desire and slake your thirst when you feel like you can't make it. And it's through Jesus' Bible that we come to see that King David would provide a greater king and he would perfectly defend the oppressed and those that suffer injustice more so. He would conquer sin and guilt and the devil. Why? So those that believe in him will reign with him. The New Testament says, don't let sin reign in your life. You are no longer under its power. You are free to believe and obey. 
You are free to stop the patterns that master you. You are free to break out of the insanity of the I can't see, uh, of the inability and culpability. You are empowered and you are forgiven. There's nothing more powerful you could have in your life. Christ has made you forgiven and he has empowered you for that. And lastly, through the prophets, we get a vision of the great bridegroom. The bridegroom that communicates to us, just as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And that there's a wedding right around the corner. Right around the corner, there's a wedding. And his people will be dressed in white linen. The entirety of Jesus' Bible, you see, has been pointing to him the whole time. It's been fulfilled in him. It's him that we see. The enlightenment leads us to a love affair. The enlightenment leads us to a place where we see God. The pure in heart will see God. You need to see God. Nothing else is going to, nothing else will do it. God came in person because you were meant to know him in person and to have the freedom to go more personal with him. So, to him who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for uh, opening up your Bible, your faithfulness to it, and the way you've revealed it to us, oh God. I pray that the light of salvation would beam upon every one of us in Christ's name. And he gives us now this.